Well, in 1550, sorry, all right. Very serious. In 1555, a man named John Rogers was the first of the English reformers to be burned at the stake. Reformers at that time were being ostracized and kicked out of their pulpits and brought to death. Rogers converted to Christianity when he was then later ordained to preach in his 30s. He later became a scholar at Oxford, spent his time translating the Bible into English so that more people could hear it and read it for themselves. But everything changed in Rogers' life in 1553. This prolific leader and preacher found himself at the other side of a sword. Edward VI had died and Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary, came to power. And she imprisoned Rogers and many other preachers like him for their gospel message. He was regularly beaten in prison, and he was called to renounce his Protestant faith. All he had to do was say, I recant, or I don't believe in what I preach or what I say, but he regularly refused. So in January of 1555, he was sentenced finally to be executed. And within a month, he was brought to the stake. And what's amazing is alongside the road, Between the prison and the stake, people lined up and literally cheered him on. They rejoiced at the constant firmness in the face of fire. His wife and his 11 children all met him on the side of the road. His kids hugged him, and they gave him straw and paper so that their dad would go quickly. Historians say that before Rogers, many preachers recanted quickly, dodging death and even pretending to be something that they preached against. But Rogers was known to have broken the ice for the gospel and proved the grace of God was sufficient even in the midst of fire. On the day he was burned, there was a French ambassador in town that day to England, and he reflected on the site, writing to a friend, he said, a public and vibrant sacrifice of a preaching doctor named John Rogers was held today. He was burned alive because he persisted in his preaching. As he was brought to his death, people celebrated his courage. Even his children assisted him, like I said before, but when it appeared that his march to his death seemed to slow, it was his oldest daughter who grabbed his hand and said, Papa, go, go. His face never showed fear, though. His disposition never showed trouble. This historian said that he continued on, for it seemed as if Rogers was being led to his own wedding, or certainly a feast. Now, stories like this are countless in church history. All around the world, people risk their lives for the sake of the gospel going out. Pastors and parishioners alike are willing to be tormented and purged from the earth for the sake of the truth given to us in the scriptures and for the glory of God shown to us by his own gospel. But but our passage this morning will actually show us the the contrast of that, that oomph of going to their death. Our passage this morning will tell you in the words of John, exactly why Jesus came incarnate, why he was born a virgin, why he was born from a particular lineage in a specific place, living a sinless life, preaching a certain message, all for a particular purpose. This isn't meaning or saying the reason. He isn't someone summing up the reason. Christ, in our passage, will tell us exactly why he came, exactly why you and I celebrate the Christmas season Christ, the Son of God, according to our word, gives us his reasoning from his own mouth. He came to die. I want you to see from the text of John chapter 12, verses 27 through 33, this morning as a shaping or signaling or forecasting the most monumental 
moment in history. It is, it is shaping your attention to, signaling your affection toward, and forecasting the very cross. And Jesus says why he came. Here Jesus says why he's come. And in this scripture, what's amazing, in contrast to so many before and after, you'll see his agony. In the midst of his predictive achievement, and finally, his aim and his death. So there are a couple of things I want you to see from this passage. Ironically and amazingly, I want you to see the agony that Christ had within himself as he said that he would face the cross for the sake of men. So first see the agony of the cross. It may seem surprising that Jesus would approach his own death with a soul that is said to be trembling. Look at verse 27 of the text. It says, Now is my soul troubled. Other men have approached their death calmly. History records many Christians facing death with peace. So why is Jesus' soul so troubled about the coming cross? I wonder in your own case, how would you approach your own death? In facing your own death, what do you expect to feel? Maybe you expect to feel like John Rogers. Maybe you expect to feel like Christ himself. History records all kinds of people facing death with peace and with calmness because of what they're marching from. But here we see Jesus marching toward something, and he's filled with agony. So why is Jesus' soul so troubled about this coming cross? Well, we, we've seen this man heal disease with a touch. We've seen him cast out devils with a word. We've seen him command waves and even winds obey him. Yet here he is in great agony. I think, it's, I think it's helpful to approach this text both practically and theologically. As terrible as his sufferings were, which is the practical way of approaching this text, the most extreme part of Jesus' suffering was actually spiritual. He was both physically facing death and pain, yes, but spiritually he was facing something that was far worse. This is the theological approach at this. He was facing his own death His physical suffering was a human experience, his spiritual suffering. In his spiritual suffering, he is divinely, think of this, receiving God the Father's full wrath to himself for the sins that you and I have committed. So the physical approach, the practical approach in this, we would imagine that he would approach the cross triumphantly. He knows exactly why he's coming, but the spiritual sense of why he's coming is because he is being brought to himself everything that he did not deserve. The root of his anguish isn't man's insults or harm. It's not Satan's wounding of his heel. Christ's anguish in chapter 12 was the recognition that he who knew no sin would be made a curse for you and I. He knows he'll suffer the righteous wrath from a God who hates sin. And so his mere thought of receiving wrath, and all the gospels tell us this, Jesus trembles. It says that his soul is troubled, like your stomach turning over in itself. And I recognize within this passage and within this sermon, I'm starting pretty heavy here, but that's where the text takes us. It's where it goes. We'll be fine. You'll be fine. But in these verses, this is actually a beautiful display of God's love towards his people, even through this man, this God's anguish. God gives us a great message through a needed doctrine here to be proved. Christ is in anguish at the reality of him being called, or what's called, imputed with our sin, so that we can later be imputed with his righteousness. 
What this text raises to the top is the doctrine of imputation, where something outside of Jesus is being brought on him, so that something outside of you and me can be brought to us. Nothing can ever explain our Lord's trouble of soul unlike this, both here in Gethsemane, except from this old doctrine, that he felt the burden of man's sin pressing him down. And it was a mighty weight of a world's guilt imputed to him and meeting on his head, which made him groan and agonize and cry out, now my soul is troubled. Friends, why was his soul troubled? Because your sins were the heavy weight of an anguish heart. Friend, I hope you see the depth of glory being shown to you through Jesus' utterance of misery. He's looking out, recognizing the seriousness of sin, the awfulness of wrath that would come his way, and he shudders. Cling to this awesome and awful doctrine. It's awesome because of who Christ did it for. He did it for sinners, like I preached on last week, but it's awful. It's awful when we think of what we did to him. That our sins have been really laid on our divine substitute and endured by him. That his righteousness is really imputed to us and accounted for. This is the real warrant of Christian peace. This is, this is why others and maybe you in the future would face a death being brought by you by a gospel message with such great peace and triumph as if you're going to your wedding or a great feast because of what was brought on him on this day. Christ swallows our sin at the cross. He carries our sin to himself, groans under the burden of our sins. He's been troubled, the text says, in soul by the weight of our sin and really taken away because of our sins. And it's because of this that you and I can approach the Scripture with that heaviness that it presents to us, with the joy that it brings us. One theologian says that in any case of our lives, we should place what seems to be big problems, we should place our little problems in light of the most massive theology. Because of the imputation of Christ, you and I can continue on even in the face of death, even in the face of pain, even in the face of separation or whatever the opposite of joy is because of this massive point that Jesus says he has come to live by and die by. So the message for us, for Christmas, Merry Christmas, is that Jesus was born to die. That as the angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, where the angel said, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins by taking to himself their very sins. Now, that's the, that's the more experiential context of the passage. Why, why all of a sudden is he filled in anguish when talking about what he's going to do? We, we see this experientially within this context of what he is going through, but I want you to see even more of God's love for you in Christ in this not only recognizing what he says and practically understanding that, piecing it together, but I, I want you to understand what is fueling his aim in doing all of this. What is fueling Christ in this? I want you to see his resolve. Continue to look at verse 27. See his resolve. He says, or he shows that he is troubled. But he asks a question, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
Notice the resolve that he has in the midst of his own impeding suffering. His resolve was not to shrink away from this looming or suffering. He asked almost sarcastically, what am I going to say? Father, save me from this? No, this is why I came. He fully grasped what was in front of him, but he was fueled by love. Not mere grit of the flesh, but strength that came from his pursuit and his undoubting love of the Father. It was his face being set on the Father's will in such a way that any pursuit that would be given to him would be met with intense, joyful love. As hard as it is to own and wear the wrath of undeserving people, Father, it is your will of why I don't want to be excused from it. I'm in anguish, but do I want to pass? Do I want an injection seat? No way. I've come for this reason. I've come for the cross, and the, and the hour is now. Your glory, Father, that's his resolve. Friend, I hope you see the, the focus of Christ here, that he wanted the Father to have all the glory in the midst of both joyful times and, in this case, really awful times. It was the Father's determination to save His people by sending the Son for this very purpose, to bear sinners' wrath. So in the midst of anguish, Jesus shows us what a God-honoring life looks like. Jesus shows us, in the midst of anguish, what it looks like to follow the Lord, solely aiming for God's glory, whether in high times or in times of anguish. James Montgomery Boyce comments on this passage by saying, the glory of God is Jesus' chief end. He wants whatever way the Father wants. I think it's helpful to recognize that Jesus wasn't just acting like a machine or a computer. You know, a computer will do everything you tell it to do. A machine operates by doing everything it's been programmed to do. This is not how Jesus is operating here. He's not emotionless in this. He's certainly not passive. Look at verse 28. It says, Father, glorify your name. He, he was living an act of love and worship. There's an object of who he's going after. That's, that's you by taking to himself your very sins. All of this is for the glory of the Father. So friend, I wonder if you think about your life, your active life in this way, your work, your play, your parenting, your childing, your submission to whomever God has placed you in submission of, submission to, your fellowship, your endurance, are you, are you aiming for any of this or all of this to be for a little bit of your glory? Or for whatever God has given you and placed in front of you, I'm going to do this for all of God's glory. Remember his agony. Remember his passion and his aim. It was for the glory of the Lord. So we see, we see the agony of the cross here that Jesus is speaking to his disciples and, and those around him who would notice. But he also not only expresses or shows the agony that the cross would bring, but also the achievement that by going this direction would be brought to himself. The, the achievement of the cross here we see in verses 29 through 31. Now, when you and I think of glory, we tend to think of possibly our own stuff. Or maybe when we think of glory, we think of glory in what we can make or what we can establish or what we can remake. You know, who wouldn't feel glorious about making the Eiffel Tower? Or making a sandcastle. You know, what do you do when you're five and you make a sandcastle? You tell everyone and you say, look what I made. We often think about works of glory in this way. Yet when Jesus sought to glory, glorify his heavenly father by his own death on the cross, 
he actually was brought to himself a glory that will never end. Jesus' agony was met by affirmation. You see the text continuing on that he, he calls out to the Lord. Uh, and then people are confused by what they've just heard. But he calls out to the Lord and something miraculous happens in verse 28. Look at verse 28 of the text. It says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came and it said, I have glorified it and I will glorify, and I will glorify it again. This is the third time that God speaks expressing his approval of Jesus. You see this as you might study or read the gospel messages. The first time that Jesus does this is, or the first time the Father does this is at Jesus' own baptism, recognizing who Jesus is. The second time that, that the Father does this is at Jesus' transfiguration, where he was brought up with Old Testament prophets of the past and shown to be the true and greater of whatever they were. And this is the third time where Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, magnify yourself. And a voice from heaven cries out, I have, and I will. Here, the Father affirms Jesus' desire and affirms what he's agonizing over. So at his birth, you and I know that God was glorified and Jesus coming how he came. At his sinlessness, you and I recognize that God was glorified by his own action by Jesus' miracles and teaching and life, God was glorified in the honor of Him, but it would be especially at the cross that Jesus would glorify God, displaying the perfection of God's justice, mercy, wisdom, and love through the death of a sinless Son. And the Father cries out to the world that they can understand and say, I am glorifying my name by this, my Son. Now, people were confused by this. They, they thought that whatever just happened was like thunder. They thought it was talking to Jesus, but Jesus was actually saying, this, this message isn't for me. This is for you to understand me and what I'm doing all this for. When the Father spoke to Jesus, the crowd thought it was thunder or a supernatural audible noise. Look at verse 29. The crowd stood there and heard it and said that it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. Just something supernatural happened, but Jesus told them that the voice was intended for them, not him. He tells them what his cross, what his death on the cross would actually achieve. Look at, look at verses 31 and 32. This is his explanation of it. It says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus quickly and clearly explains that the achievement that would be brought to them by him for God's glory. He gives three things there. The, the world is judged, Satan is cast out, and through this, he will draw people to himself. Now, when it, when it says that the world is judged, by showing the sinlessness of the Son, God's perfect Son dies in a cruel humiliation and suffers a terrible wrath being brought to him from God because of sin. And so this is the world being judged here. Now, today sin is an insignificant thing in so many people's lives. It's excused as a, as a character flaw, right? Well, I act that way. That's just who I am. You know, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. That's why I'm a bully, you know? Or the inevitable results of poor environments or circumstances. I was brought up that way, or that's what I learned from other people, or I didn't know because I wasn't placed in that circumstance. But the cross exposes the evil of sin through judgment. Sin is so evil 
that the world's sins were judged by Jesus' death. So the cross judges the world, but also the cross judges Satan. Satan here is speaking, this is in verse 31, Satan uh, is being spoken of by Jesus. Jesus is speaking of the devil here. The, the irony is that the cross was, at least in Satan's mind, you can imagine in his mind, it was the greatest triumph in his cross. He finally got him. This battle royale from the beginning of all time, he finally got the man, brought him to his knees, hung him on a cross. But the Messiah had been put to death by the will of people. And in the greatest reversal ever, Jesus instead, it shows and scripturally explains that Jesus overthrew Satan's reign, that Satan's reign through sin has now been stopped, that it no longer holds sway over men and women through the power of their guilt before God and by lying to us about God's goodness. We're no longer we're no longer trapped in chains in a prison cell governed by Satan, by Christ's death on the cross. Those chains have been released, that cell has been opened, and we are now under the command of a new person. The cross shows us Jesus' death removing our sin by paying the debt of our guilt. And when someone comes to Christ for their forgiveness, Christ also sends his spirit to deliver them from Satan's power. One theologian says that when a person becomes a Christian, he is delivered from Satan's grasp and the chains of sin which had shackled him are instantly broken. Friends, I wonder if you can remind yourself of all that was done for you at the cross. Your sins were dealt with. The chains that seemed to wrap themselves around you, that evil pointing finger of Satan who keeps telling you that you're not being loved by anyone, that was ended. The rehearsal of the gospel message is regularly the the sweetest and the most joyful thing because of what he did on the cross. But But he's not done. He continues on. The cross secured not only the judgment of the world that rejected Jesus, but also the overthrow of the great enemy, the devil, but also the cross draws sinners to God in reconciliation. There's a, this is a more positive approach that the cross, uh, how the cross glorified the Father. It's power to draw sinners and restore them to God. Look at verse 32 of this text. Jesus continues, and when and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is one of the greatest verses on the power of the cross for the salvation of sinners. It says, by saying, or when it says, by saying, when I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus is clearly referring to the dreadful events of the cross that would take place in just a few short days and when he announced this message. The cross would glorify not only God's righteous judgment, but also his gracious power to draw men and women into the fellowship with himself by Jesus going to the cross, dying on the cross, that would be used by God to draw us to himself. In this respect, the cross is the greatest display of God's love to the world. Uh, The Puritan pastor Jeremiah Burroughs writes, Behold, the infinite love of God in Christ to mankind. Rather than God see men perish eternally, God sent his Son to take our nature to himself and suffer such dreadful things And herein God shows his love. Oh, what power, what might this drawing efficacious thought should be to us forever. Reflecting on this, another one says, by his crucifixion, resurrection, 
ascension and coronation, Jesus attracts to himself all of God's elect from every age and nation. He draws them by means of his word and spirit. The point here is, is that by the work of God announced, by the proclamation of what God did and does for his people, by this word going out, people are drawn to him by that word going out. People aren't drawn to God by their own work but rather they're drawn to God by His message, by His showcase of what He has done. People aren't drawn to God by their own effort. They're drawn to God by Him drawing them to Himself, pointing to His cross by saying, look at what I've done. And I say all this because seeing the achievements of the cross of Christ ought to be the continual focus of our hearts, no matter the season no matter our position, no matter our opportunity. The the thing that Paul says we should be known by is actually the things that ought to be our pursuit, is the regular rehearsal and focus of the cross. Now, for the last couple of hundred years, some some Christians have made a a big deal out of what is referred to or called the church calendar. So they, they celebrate or they follow the church calendar. It starts with Advent, goes into Christmas, celebrates Epiphany, celebrates Lent or observes Lent, celebrates Easter, and then finally Pentecost. And so on a regular 12-month basis, the Christian calendar is followed and rehearsed in different patterns. And that's all fine and great. Maybe, maybe you do it. I would imagine you do it because it's very helpful. I would imagine a lot of you parents count down the days to Christmas or use an Advent calendar and able to showcase what Christmas is all about. Do more of that. Buy more calendars. It's all very good. But be careful to not allow an annual calendar to keep you from the focus you're called to have. Because for most of Christian history, from the very beginning, there wasn't an annual calendar that was observed or remembered, but there was a weekly calendar that was celebrated, where Lord's Day after Lord's Day, after Lord's Day, after Lord's Day, after Lord's Day, and weeks become years, and years become decades, and decades become a life Christians gather. Lord's Day after Lord's Day, by the power of the Spirit's regeneration, In the name of Christ, for the glory of the Father, to do what? Remember the death of Christ and the resurrection of the Son. Friend, this Christmas season will be filled with so many things. (laughs) Delight in those the good things. Put away those things that bring distraction and dishonor. However many Christmases you might celebrate. Ours started yesterday in Edmond and hopefully will conclude next week in Tulsa. But as you see... And as you gaze your focus on the baby in the manger, I want to encourage you to drive your heart and the hearts around you to where that baby would later be hanged. Remember why Christ came. He came to die, to draw you to himself. And he was determined to go there. It's the magnification of the cross where men and women are drawn to his glory. So you see the triumph, and finally, you see the the aim that this cross has. You see this in verse 32 and 33. On a positive note, I want to leave you with is triumph. Look at verse 32. It says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, or another way to say, if I am crucified, that's what that means. He's not talking here about preachers lifting him up or even musicians lifting up the name of Jesus, which we should do. He's not talking about people who should point to the cross and lift high the name of Christ, which we should do. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying, if I'm crucified, I will draw all men to myself, 
all men, meaning Jews and Gentiles, people from every tongue and tribe and nation of the entire planet, by me going high, everything from afar will be brought near. He at the cross provides triumph through the work by which all men can be saved. Children of God from all over the world know where to go because he is drawing them to himself. Now, earlier in this chapter, so earlier in chapter 12 of John, Jesus gives an example of what it will look like for him to die by using a seed that goes into the earth. And what will need to happen for that seed to burst out fruit is for that seed in some way, if you think of it, will die, will cease to be that seed. So that fruit will sprout up. Now, Jesus is the fruit of the grain going into the ground, dying, if you will, being buried, as he said back in verse 24 of the chapter. And it's because he's crucified that he then can draw all people to himself. It's in his death that he gives fruit of life. Triumph is handed over to him at the cross, where the world thinks they have judged him, but it's the world who was judged. Satan thinks that he was condemned, but Satan is condemned at the cross. You look at Christ and you assume that he is completely defeated. But the truth is that he is triumphant at the cross and has done a work by which he can gather the elect throughout all history. It's amazing what this, what this moment and time will do. And Jesus comes up at the beginning of this passage and says, the hour's now. The hour's now because of how many people are coming to me. So his anguish in many ways, becomes anticipation. His trouble becomes triumph. And in the cross, he sees and seeks the glory of God, the overthrow of evil, the end of Satan, the drawing of all men to himself. And he gladly pays the purchasing price because of the glory it brings to the Father and the rescuing of God's people. Now, John would go on to show how people heard after this passage. John would just immediately go on and say that people were very confused at what Jesus was talking about. They, they hear this man saying something, and they hear something seemingly from the heavens, and then Jesus explains what they should have heard, and then they continue on to say, I, I do not know the words that you just told me. Look at verse 33, though. John makes it very clear so that you and I do not go home in doubt of what Jesus was saying or talking about. Look at verse 33. To sum up Jesus' words, John gives us the understanding so that we won't be led astray. It says there that he said, to, or he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The hour had come. In the midst of gathering Jews and Gentiles under his message, the hour had come for him to die by being lifted up on a cross. People would hear Jesus' message and be confused because they didn't understand that Isaiah 53 and 52 were actually about Jesus. They didn't understand that what was being talked about or prophesied about in Daniel 9 was actually that this Messiah would be cut off. They didn't understand Zechariah chapter 12, that, that he was the one who would be pierced. And so the cross to so many was just a stumbling block because if you're so great and glorious, why would you die? And that's why he came. Through Jesus' crucifixion, he was fulfilling exactly what he said in our passage. He was fulfilling the Father's desire to redeem a people so that they would forever wear the robes of righteousness that belong to Christ. So friends, I hope you see the triumph of the cross, the God-man brought low. So that you and I, think about this, can be brought high. All right, back to the beginning. What do you expect to feel when facing your own death? Whatever you're probably thinking, if you're honest, that'd be very normal. 
but the hope that you have in the outcome of your death. That hope, all of that hope and the outcome brought by your death is brought to you by the death of Christ who suffered agony in your own place, who took on wrath on your behalf, who enduring the imputation of your sin so that you would have forever the imputation of his own righteousness. Friends, when we see the reason for Christ's coming, may we see the Savior as he fully is. And may we long to love him and worship him and treasure his gospel more and more. May God work in us all by his very gospel being announced here and being announced internally so that we may both live for him and die for him without fear. For our fear has no place in the midst of his great triumph. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that it is by your work in sending your Son and in sending your Spirit that we can understand the greatness and gravity and glory of your work for us. Lord, we pray that you would remind us of what brought him here and that you would be reminding us of where he will soon bring us into the presence of his glorious face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.